0: Our reading today is taken from Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to chapter 2, verse 3, and can be found on page 3 of the Pew Bibles. So Genesis chapter 1, starting at verse 26. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness I give every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done.
1: Eugene for reading that to us. I would love it if you could keep Genesis chapter 2 open but I'm actually going to sneak an additional reading if I can and I'll tell you why. It's because I was reminded um, just recently of uh, the articles of religion. Occasionally I sort of dip into them and uh, I've got article 20 in front of me which I thought was an apt thing to read out from time to time says in Article 20, these are the sort of doctrinal statements of the Church of England. Article 20 of the authority of the Church. It is not lawful for the Church to ordain anything that is contrary to God's word written. And in this telling phrase, neither may it so expound one place of scripture that it be repugnant to another. And it's on that basis our view, what the Reformers call the analogy of the faith, that the scripture is a, a harmony because it all comes from the mind of God. It would be quite wrong to expound one bit of it so that it's repugnant to another. It's on that basis that week by week we normally have two readings. And I was a bit horrified as I came to church on Sunday, uh, this morning and realized we only had one reading. Actually, there's plenty of other scripture in the service, but you're going to get another reading. So keep Genesis... Um, Two open, please, and turn on to Matthew chapter twelve, page nine seven seven in the Church Bibles. Matthew chapter 12, I'd like to start from verse 1 and read to verse 8. At that time, Jesus went through the cornfields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some ears of corn and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. He answered, now watch how he quotes scripture repeatedly, He answered, haven't you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, but only for the priests. Or, haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath and yet are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you'd known what these words mean, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Okay, uh, back to Genesis chapter 2, if you would, and I'll lead us in prayer. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the richness of your word in all its parts. And we trace that richness back to you and the wonder of your mind. We thank you for your wisdom. We thank you for your truth. We thank you that your word stands eternal. And we pray, gracious God, that you'd help us to hear your word and take it to heart and feed on it this morning. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, let me begin by telling you... Oh, I should have said we, we'd looked at the end of Chapter 1 last week. That was just by way of recap that we had that read again by Gene. But it's really 1 to 3 we're on today of Chapter 2. And let me begin by telling you about the dream of a Texas billionaire called Ed Bass... This is towards the end of last century, I think around the start of the 90s, end of the 80s. He funded an experiment in the Arizona desert, Oracle, Arizona, where eight people in red jumpsuits originally stepped into another world. It was a huge biosphere greenhouse. It sounds a bit like the description I've read, a sort of combination of Center Parks and the Eden Project. It was called Biosphere 2. And they were intending to live there for two years, cut off from the outside world, in a completely closed, self-sustaining ecosystem. So the plants were supposed to produce all the food and oxygen they needed. It had its own mini rainforest, bushland, desert, or even a small ocean. Now, it still exists to this day, and there have been a couple of reruns of the original experiment. But it only emerged later that actually Biosphere 2 had, in fact, for that original stint of two years, bought in several months' worth of food. Um, They had teething trouble with the air supply system. Fresh air had to be pumped in because it wasn't quite perfectly balanced. And at that point, before the various reruns, it was slightly discredited as a scientific experiment. But as I say, interestingly, it kept going. They were convinced, the people that set it up, that life on planet Earth was doomed, And they were keen to start some sort of new superior colony on another planet, maybe Mars. Now, I don't imagine many of us here are queuing up to go to Mars, particularly. But that dream of a fresh start for humanity, an ideal civilization, that's never far from our hearts. I take it you've had that dream in your own hearts. And it's why Genesis chapter 2 is apt for us. And maybe particularly you think at the start of a newish year. We're homesick for the paradise from which we sprung. And we'll look in the next few weeks as the chapter unfolds at what a ravishing picture it is. Um, We started, as I said, last week. The sixth day of creation ended with that pronouncement by God, very good. So God looks on all the world he's made, including mankind, and he says to himself, Behold, it's very good. It's a job well done. And his work completed, he draws a line and stops. So chapter 2, verse 1, looks back on all the stuff we've looked at in chapter 1 and reviews it. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. And it is the totality of creation which is being emphasized there. There isn't a single atom in the universe which doesn't owe its existence to God, which I take it ought to be reassuring because wherever we go in the world, it belongs to God and he's in charge. Wherever we go, the home, the holiday location, the hospital, everything and everywhere, he's the maker and master of it all. God had completed the heavens, it says, everything up there, God had completed the earth down here. But to find out the purpose of God's creation, we've got to look on to verses 2 and 3. Verse 2. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he'd been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And I want to be slightly sort of tiresome, and look at the nuts and bolts of the language there. Just consider three verbs that have three things God did. First, it says God finished. Actually, the idea comes twice in verse 2, because the words for finish and rest have the same roots. He stopped his work, and he downed his tools. Now, that is obviously not to say that God has withdrawn from his world and has nothing more to do with it. It's not like us leaving the office or school behind on Friday evening. God is still absolutely involved in his world. He sustains it moment by moment. It's just the work of creation which he stopped. And he stopped it for a very good reason. It simply couldn't be better. God finished. Second verb. God blessed. Verse 3. Then God blessed the seventh day. Which means he declared it good and made sure it was good. Remember in chapter 1, he blessed mankind first. Then here, he blessed the seventh day for mankind. And this day was one of his most prized gifts to humanity, a great blessing for our good. And as we'll see as we go through the chapter, how good it was in Eden. We get a, a hint of the ravishing portrait of this parkland paradise in the rest of the chapter. Um, I was eating a bounty bar last night, and it reminded me of those adverts, the taste of paradise. You might not think that dark chocolate around coconut is a taste of paradise, but the adverts were good. Only this is better, because the real treat here was for the man to have close, uninterrupted friendship. Um, At the end of the chapter, with the woman... Supremely, of course, with God, walking and talking with him in the cool of the day. That was what this picture of rest and paradise was all about originally. God's people in God's place under God's rule. God blessed the seventh day. A third verb view God sanctified the day. Verse 3 says, He made it holy which means, at its simplest, quite simply, different. Just as a, a, a holy building, like the temple, later in the Bible, was set apart for different uses, sacred assemblies, sacrifices, so God made the seventh day special. And you could say he took it out of normal circulation. It was to be different from the other six. Now, you can tell it's different from the others because... The formula from before about an evening and a morning is missing. Each day in chapter 1 reads similarly. There was evening and there was morning the first day, second day, third day, all the way through to there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. And we sort of expect something similar for this seventh day when you get to chapter 2. But there's no mention of the morning and the evening there. And that is significant, surely, because... This seventh day doesn't end. Now, mankind's enjoyment of this rest was shattered at the fall, but it doesn't change God's great purpose for creation. His goal for the universe and for us is an endless, eternal day. That's what creation culminates in. It's where creation was heading all along. So there's no evening and morning mentioned because, in a sense, this seventh day is different. It's set apart. It's sanctified by God. It is outside time, almost as if the God who's broken into space and time to create now steps back from the world and rests in eternity. Well, so much for the nuts and bolts of the verses. As the Bible unfolds, it's these three verses that give us the origin for the fourth commandment of honoring the Sabbath day. Um, And it really sets the tone for it's outworking in the rest of the Bible. Let me try and apply this teaching about rest or Sabbath, therefore, in three different ways. Here's the first. Rest from our work. I think I mentioned last week, you're aware, no doubt, that the days of Genesis is one area where Christians disagree. But I find it hard myself to read the first chapter as a, if I can put it this way, strictly chronological account. There are certainly puzzles if you do, like how light was created on day one and the sun and the moon only on day four. Moses was not a fool. He knew he'd written that. And it's intended to be a puzzle for us to tease out. But I doubt, because of things like that, that we're intended to take it as a chronological account of six consecutive 24-hour days. Instead, said, it seems to me that the writer is explaining creation order, the relationship between God and his world, God and humanity. Creation order, not chronological order. I assume that the days are a literary device, partly. Genesis is saying... Imagine God's activity in creation as a working week. So God worked, got it done, He finished, he rested. With the implication that the rest of the Bible will unpack that we should work at our work, get it finished, and then rest from it in order to spend time with God. Now, that interpretation doesn't mean that any of Genesis 1 is fiction. Absolutely not. It's talking about real events. God created. God rested. In fact, the language is is very bold. On the seventh day, he rested. There's a chapter that quotes that later on in the Bible, Exodus chapter 31, which goes even further. Literally, it says that God got his breath back. Not because God was somehow exhausted by the effort of it all. For almighty God, creation was Effortless, He simply spoke, and creation came into being. So there's no suggestion that he was tired out by what he'd done. Presumably, this sort of vivid language is there to make sure you and I get a vital message. God wanted to announce to all creation that after six days' work, enough is enough. And he's so serious about this point that he chose to use himself as an example. It's amazing, really, isn't it? Therefore, rest from work as the Ten Commandments take it up. Um, Teaching on the seventh day later on in the Bible is is very emphatic. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. For, quoting Genesis 2, in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, but he rested the seventh day. So I wonder if we've got that message. Work is a very good thing. God does it. In fact, I think the verb is used of him in the Bible before it's used of anybody else. And certainly, this is before the rebellion of the man and the woman has brought judgment which affected work for the worse and made it hard. Work's a very good thing, but it's not the only thing. God rested There is more to life than work. It is, you could say, a simple principle of creation. And the need, therefore, for balance between work and rest is a law written to every cell of our body, part of our biological makeup, which we'd be mad to ignore, simply because of the way we're made. A day off once a week for everyone is right and good. I was speculating um, at the first service and I saw some heads nodding about Michael Portillo, former politician. He's arguably had a a higher profile in the years since he stepped down from the uh, cabinet. He said at the time, as he sort of broke out of politics, he said this, I don't think I will merit more than a footnote in the history of the Conservative Party, but along the way, I discovered that life and career are not the same thing. Many people are miserable, he said, until they find that out. And of course, he's absolutely right. Nobody has ever heard to say on their deathbed, I wish I'd spent more time at the office. He sees it. Christians should see it even more clearly. Work is not the meaning of life. The goal of creation was Sabbath rest with God pictured in that relationship the man and the woman have with God in Eden. So a weekly day off reminds us that our relationship with God is much more significant than our work. I like the story about an accountant who was waiting on a station platform when somebody asked him, who are you and what do you do? He said, I'm a Christian thinly disguised as an accountant. In other words, his relationship with God was what really mattered about him, not his employment. Now, I know that if I'd been speaking to um, students, maybe, I might have had to emphasize the first bit of the command, six days you shall labor. But as a culture, it's the call to stop work, which we're actually more likely to ignore, isn't it? And that must mean that we're living with our fingers hovering above the self-destruct button. Uh, Christians disagree about this I don't myself think that the fourth commandment is actually a command to keep Sunday special specifically I don't think the New Testament commands that of Christians anywhere it's a little hard if you think to defend that by appealing to the ten commandments when you consider that the Sabbath commandment was actually when it was drafted intended to regulate behavior on the sixth day not the seventh Saturday not Sunday so I'm a little ambivalent about it. I don't think it's quite as simple as saying keep Sunday special. But we still need to remember that the patent label on this command says made in Eden, not made in Israel. Its origin goes back to Genesis 2, not Exodus 20. So I don't think myself there is an option on taking a full day off, one day in seven, whichever day it is. And it'll look different from person to person. Any young mum sitting here would think, what does he know? How am I supposed to take a day off with three children under five? Or whatever it might be. We've all got busy lives, haven't we? And therefore, to have a different day where I don't do unnecessary work, we might say, well, it feels like it's adding to the pressure to do that. But Genesis wants to say to us, it isn't adding to the pressure long term. It's a false economy not to take time out. A weekly rest will keep us sharp for the rest of time. And it's God's good gift to us. I want to invite us just to pause and just quietly encourage you to make some sort of response about that as you bring your working life and your rest to God in prayer. thank you heavenly father for that finished work of creation the good work it was and the rest from labor which you hold out before us and we pray you'd help us to take that example of yours into our lives week by week in jesus name amen sorry you probably thought that was the end of the sermon it's not we're going to pause a couple of times but we are nearing or nearer the end than the beginning now. Let's keep going. A second uh, flavor of rest here. Not just rest from work, rest in Christ, which I think uh, Tom has helpfully introduced us to. But I'm thinking of that occasion which I read from Matthew 12 about, where Jesus called himself the Lord of the Sabbath, which must have, I mean, that claim must have left the Pharisees reeling, don't you think, at the time? It's typical of Jesus, by the way. He takes something treasured and claims it as his, as his, as his own. So he says, look, I'm, I'm greater than your greatest heroes. I'm greater than Solomon. I'm greater than the temple. And on that occasion, well, you reckon the Sabbath's pretty important do you? Well, it belongs to me. I'm lord of the Sabbath. It's mine. Now, they got their ideas, the Pharisees, about how the Sabbath was to be observed. Was that occasion... Um, we read that where the disciples are picking corn. I bet none of us, as I read that to you, were thinking that's an image of a combine harvest going full throttle through the fields. But to the Pharisees, the disciples were reaping and threshing. That was two activities that were covered under their rules. And against that backdrop, Jesus stands up and says, look, I'll tell you what the Sabbath is really all about. It is appointed to me. I see the burdens that religion puts people under. And I want to give rest. Come to me. I'm the fulfillment of this law. Or as he puts it in Matthew 11, one of the comfortable words we heard earlier. If you want Sabbath, then come to me, the one who's gentle in heart, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest Isn't it lovely that Jesus is like that? And I don't doubt that some of us here need that reminder, not simply for rest from our nine-to-five weekday work or our academic work, but also from our religious works. We slip into a works mentality again and again. So, I don't know how it might be in your case, but if I fall into some pattern of sin, how do I deal with it? Well, I... I don't necessarily run back to Christ, who's longing to give me rest, who died so that I could have rest and no forgiveness. I don't necessarily run back to him and find rest in him. I'll try that technique of redoubling all my Christian activities, a longer, quiet time, inviting more people to church events. I might have a a list already of Christian causes I'm involved with around the country, And they're good things. And I think, well, I can take on that one and that one as well. But I'll never find rest through that particular route or anywhere else I might care to look of the same nature. Some of us here are perfectionists, and you know exactly what I mean, because you set yourself high standards and then beat yourself up when you can't reach them. And Jesus lovingly says no look to me i'm the one that gives sabbath rest you'll never find it by your own efforts well let's pause again and see if we can reflect and pray about that tendency in our lives rest from our religious works in christ alone Lord, please forgive us when even in church circles we try the busy, busy, busy route almost to keep you from arm's length. Please forgive us. Please draw us back to yourself. We thank you that we can find in Jesus Christ rest for our consciences. We thank you for His death, paying for sin in a way we can't and don't need to pay for it ourselves. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus says he can restore the paradise that's been lost. Taste of it now, because if we come to Christ, our sins are forgiven. We're friends with God. And one day we'll know the rest of being God's people in God's place, in God's presence, perfectly. Not in Eden, but in heaven. So on to a third application point, rest in heaven. Because with the inauguration of this eternal day, we've seen that God's goal for his creation is not for us to be taken up with the world we can see and touch. Instead, we're to be consumed with love for him, and longing to be with him beyond this world. In other words, God didn't make mankind only to populate the earth, that theme of uh, the end of chapter 1, but actually to inhabit eternity with him. And it means we mustn't try and make for ourselves a perfect home here, give up the dream of trying to find the perfect home improvements that will satisfy you. They never will because you were made for far more than that. I suppose we ought to say, give up the dream of creating a perfect world in this world, the sort of biosphere to existence, a new human colony. Those sorts of efforts are always going to disappoint, because when humans try to create rest together, they can never succeed on their own. Think of all our attempts to provide political solutions to mankind's problems. Again, they will not ultimately succeed wherever you place yourself on the political spectrum. Now, I'm not saying by that that Christians should step right out of the political arena. Of course, we're to show concern for our world here and now. But we mustn't be under any illusions as to where our destiny ultimately is. It's beyond this fallen world in a heavenly rest. And we've got to keep pointing ourselves and encouraging each other Onto to that future. As Hebrews 4 says, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. I understand with elephants, when they're just babies, their trainer puts a shackle around a leg with a chain attached to a, a, a tiny stake, a 10-pound stake or something. A baby elephant doesn't weigh much. It tries to pull away but can't. But, of course, a massive adult elephant which weighs a couple of tons or more, amazingly, can be held by the same size stake as younger ones. How come, you wonder? Well, as you know, elephants have got great memories. They never forget. It's also true, I'm afraid, that they are not very bright. Adult elephants remember that they were staked up as babies and couldn't pull away. And at some point in the past, they've all become convinced that they won't be able to pull away. So as adults, they don't even try. But the elephant isn't really chained to the stake. They're chained to the memory that in the past they couldn't get away. That's how a a massive adult elephant can be held down by a 10-pound stake. And we're often a bit like that ourselves. We're chained to the past, living in the only world we've ever known, as if we're trapped here. And what a tragedy that is when we're supposed to be heading for a glorious future, Not a flawed existence in a fallen world, but the ultimate rest, a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. And maybe if heaven has lost its magnetic pull for us, well maybe that is because we're neglecting to enjoy a foretaste of heaven in a day off work and a day for fellowship with God. And what we've been looking at You see, in Genesis 2, is isn't just a story, a sort of biblical once upon a time. It's telling us, loud and clear, that we were made by God to know God and to enjoy a permanent relationship with him, beginning now as we come to Jesus Christ, but perfected for all eternity in heaven. What could be better than for us to reorient ourselves to that in this first month? of a new decade let's pray together and we thank you as we ponder these truths for raising Jesus on the third day we thank you that the resurrection age has begun in him We thank you that eternity is not just a gamble for us, but built on a sure hope. And we pray you'd help each one of us to live for that great rest in the future and to know it begun now in our experience. Help us even this morning as we look around at uh, the people in church and talk afterwards to spur each other on to that rest we pray it father for jesus sake amen